So this is part three of the thesis on saint stories and the self. The first section, we talked about um, the problem of modernity. We've all experienced the problems uh, in interpersonal relationships, in the workplace, in the environment, and all of these things are made obvious by the news cycle, which highlights the problems that have come about from these um, these issues and the problems that have come about in our endeavors to fix these, these problems. Um, and the loss of... Um, the disconnection between action and vision, our vision for wanting good things to come about and our acting to make these things happen, we can see that we have been handicapped by something important to the, the self's uh, motivation, and that is the mythological realm, the thing that can truly cause inspiration in our world. So that was the problem. In the second section, we talked about Adorno and Horkheimer's critique of modernity, and they've used this retelling of Odysseus and the Sirens to point us there. In that story, uh, we could we could read this as saying that modernity has told us that myth is like sirens, and like Odysseus, um, we can we can be tied to a mast while appreciating the the language uh, or the the singing of the sirens in this voyeuristic way, or we can simply block out the sounds of the the, the of, of myth by plugging our ears with with wax. I wanted to just uh, include one last thing in that section uh, from Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical Spey Salvi, and he's talking about Adorno and Horkheimer's critiques. He says in uh, paragraph 22, a self-critique of modernity is needed in dialogue with Christianity and its concept of hope, which is the point of the encyclical. He says, first we must ask if progress was already subject to critique, which it was. Um, Adorno formulated the problem of faith in progress quite drastically. He said that progress, seen accurately, is progress from the sling to the atom bomb. Now, this is certainly an aspect of progress that must not be concealed. To put it another way, the ambiguity of progress becomes evident. Without doubt, it becomes it offers new possibilities for good, but it also opens up appalling possibilities for evil, possibilities that formerly did not exist. We have all witnessed the way in which progress in the wrong hands has become and has indeed become a terrifying process in evil. If technical progress is not matched by corresponding progress in man's ethical formation, in man's inner growth, then it is not progress at all, but a threat for man and for the world. It becomes this, this atom bomb of, of technology's control and violence over mankind, we might say. This also reminds us of something that uh, Romano Guardini talked about in his letters to Lake Como, where he kind of highlights the difference between, um, say, something like a, the connection between something like a, a hammer, which is like an extension of a closed fist, right? So if you're trying to do something you know, very natural, like building a shelter or something like that, you might invent something like the hammer to, to be able to, to, to make better use of, of your own swinging arm. There's something kind of pattern-like. But through technology, we've actually sort of lost this pattern. You know, there's, in concept, there's something similar between somebody swinging a closed fist, um, in, again, similar in concept to that of a jackhammer, 
But again, the way that we operate such a thing is very, very different. There is sort of this disconnection um, in what Benedict calls this the ambiguity of progress. Um, or again, to, to kind of see this disconnection uh, further in Guardini, what Adorno calls the, the progress from the sling to the atom bomb. And this brings us then to the third section after that lengthy secondary intro to the second section. But we are talking here about the third section in which we will discuss the work of Charles Taylor, uh, specifically in two of his writings uh, in his book called The Sources of the Self and, of course, in his great tome, um, Our Secular Age, Our Secular Age. So let's, let's continue. Adorno and Horkheimer's reading of Odysseus and the Sirens provides a powerful picture for understanding the enormous gap between our myth-inspired moral aspirations and unaccomplished and uninspired inspired action. But their critique in some ways doesn't offer the remedy that we might be looking for in this mythological realm. Were the king of Ithaca's hands not tied, chasing the Sirens singing would certainly have led to a painful death. The alternative is no better, for, ha for saving the self from, from annihilation necessarily involves violence. This abusive and objectifying Herrschaft, the commanding his sailors to fill their ears with wax, or, you know, again, opposed to tying oneself to the mast. So it is here that the work of Charles Taylor is beneficial. While he accepts the critiques of dialectic, he offers a path from critique to positive reconstruction with his concept of constitutive goods. So Taylor describes a constitutive good as, quote, something the love of which empowers us to do and be good. So there's, there's a lot going on there. A constitutive good is something the love of which empowers us to do and be good. It is, as he continues saying, picked out as an incomparably, incomparably higher thing on the rational order above or even against alternative options, something ethically weightier than an arbitrary list of preferred pros and something non-instrumental. So in sum, it is a moral source. So this concept is obviously similar to Plato's highest ideal goods, as these constitutive goods give order to all dialogue, politics, and society. So therefore, let's reread the Odyssean story in a different light, um, in light of Taylor's account of constitutive goods. Uh, looking for these constitutive goods amidst the desecration of what is in our hearts telling us good things are, and modernity's retelling of what a good thing is, which is to escape uh, the call of the mythic. So Taylor doesn't explicitly do this, um, but thinking of constitutive goods as the siren's call opens up a new constructive way of reading the story. And again, just to clarify again there, when I'm saying siren here, I'm saying what modernity has told us is a siren, not the actual Odyssean uh, canonical sirens. Um, Far from posing a threat to the self, the recovery of self would involve heeding the call of one's constitutive goods. Such a reading provides an answer to the modern fear of the familiar internal melodies of these goods, instead of saying, seeing those things as the temptations of insidious nymphs um, or the, the, the almost moral desire to tie oneself to a mast when such a siren song is heard. Just to put it another way, there is something within us that seems to indicate the need for our response, even from purely secular dialogue. And again, especially, say, in the realm of environmental care, there is this, this, this 
constitutive good that aligns people to such environment, to work in environmental care. However, by referring to this constitutive good as something that is not mythical, what we are denying then is the power of, of the siren, the power of the, the thing greater than us that can actually cause our full motivation, our full inspiration, as it were. Let's jump a little deeper into Taylor's constitutive goods and maybe some things that should be clarified about his concepts here. The first thing that we should talk about is the experience of constitutive goods, which are um, similar to the issue of progress, ambiguous. They're difficult to articulate. So on one hand, they seem to make an objective claim on us, right? We couldn't hope to live in a world that we destroy the planet. That seems to be fairly important, right? Um, that, that's, there seemed to be something objective there. Um, could, could we really be human and destroy the place that humans live on? Or, you know, the other two issues we discussed, the workplace, something we spend so much of our day uh, or our lives a part of where we find our identi identities in. Um, it, can we really just section those off? Can we really compartmentalize those things? Shouldn't we have something greater that we are working towards? Again, this kind of appeal indicates there really is something deep to that. We need the constitutiveness of those things. Every system, uh, religious or otherwise, is making objective claims upon us. Even systems defined as uh, by utilitarian cost-benefit analyses or libertine do-no-harm do no principles are still requiring a degree of submission, the do or do not. On the other hand, uh, from this ambiguous sort of seemingly objective thing, we have to realize that these claims do not just appear, right? They're not subjective in the sense that one just wakes up one morning. I don't mean subjective in that way. Um, they don't just appear on the scene like that. But rather, um, they do have a foundation. There is, there is a source cited uh, in terms of the authority of such an opinion. And that is the self, really. They come from deep within. These, these, these kinds of, um, these, these constitutive goods. So rather than say, well, why do you think that? Where is that written? Um, you can say in here, in the heart. So the experience of constitutive goods in the self do not fit well within widely accepted naturalistic understandings of objective reality. As Taylor writes, quote, we are not selves in the way that we are organisms, or we don't have selves, we don't possess a self in the way we have hearts and livers. And to ask what a person is in abstraction from his or her self-interpretations is to ask a fundamentally misguided question, one to which there couldn't in principle be an answer. Again, we see this word abstraction appear in this quotation. Uh, this is from Charles Taylor's philosophical papers where he's outlining this. So, so because of this, right, so we, we could, from a naturalistic standpoint, say, okay, I get it. I get what you're saying. So the source you're citing is your heart. Great. But I can't go into your heart. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm a heart surgeon telling you this. I can't go inside there and peek around and say, ah, yes, there's a little scroll in here in which is written, we should um, have work that isn't totally dehumanizing. We can't look for those things in that way. So... Therefore, constitutive goods and the self 
and the self as an authority, um, these things are difficult to articulate or rank as important from a modernist lens. Many of our contemporaries, while they remain quite unattracted by the naturalist attempt to deny ontology altogether, and while on the contrary they recognize that their moral reactions show them to be committed to some adequate basis, they are perplexed and uncertain where it comes to say, when it comes to saying what this basis is. Something similar arises for many of them when they question of what, on the question of what makes human life worth living or what confers meaning on their individual lives. Most of us are still in the process of groping for answers here. So essentially, we are plagued by inarticulacy stricken by the extrapolations of modern constrictions. The only reason we have a problem articulating this is not because is not because we have no context in which to say, I am moved by this desire. No, we all are already moved by those things. It's just that the frameworks that we have decided to adopt don't allow us to make that claim. We are not allowed, we are bound from, from being able to say, my heart has moved me. So given these, uh, from modernity's perspectives, uh, from, from modernity's perspective, ambiguities and difficulties, we also have other external pressures. Um, we live in a pluralistic society, and it makes it hard um, to therefore understand our own moral, um, especially moral objections or subscriptions to different things. We do have some, there are goods that come from this. We have greater commitments to diversity and awareness of dangers posed by claims to especially nationalistic or ethnic supremacy. We understand in a greater degree the importance of interreligious dialogue. And so some of these accounts of the authority of the heart that, uh, that we might say um, it could make some hesitant to, to claim particular goods as objectively higher than others. And again, the, the abstraction that comes from the sciences can help us uh, navigate those waters to, you know, to avoid us from talking about one religion as being better than another or a race being better uh, than another. I mean, because it seems then that to make such claims would inevitably lead to domination and violence. So because of this understanding, this understandable fear of imposing one's highest goods from the heart on others, moderns tie themselves to the mast. But in so doing, their constitutive goods lose their motivating power. So the desire to not have human beings destroy each other is in itself a constitutive good. So how can we counter against ideologies that, that look at, at the violence done to others um, when those people are using their quote-unquote constitutive goods to argue against this pluralistic hamstrung model? Who's going to win out? That should concern the modern. Taylor attempts to resolve these dilemmas in two ways. So first, he makes a case for the objectivity of the good. Second, he offers a model of practical reasoning that allows for the pursuit of constitutive goods in a way that does not involve violence to the other. Let's talk about the first issue, or the first, um, uh, his, his first attempt to solve this problem, the uh, case for the object, objectivity of the good. He says, in Sources of the Self, um, to the extent that our natural science since the 17th century has been developing on the basis of a conception of the world, which is maximally freed from anthropocentric conceptions, we can say that good and right are not a part of the world as studied by natural science. 
so he's he's accepting you know there's not like an evil bad thing against sort of responding maybe to a um, particular movement of fundamentalism that would look at, at science as being wholly bad um, he's saying that yeah we can see that what science can measure isn't the heart but to continue with Taylor but from there it is an unjustified leap to say that they therefore these these heart-based things these constitutive goods that they therefore are not real objective and non-relative as any other part in the natural world just because they can't be studied by the natural world doesn't make them any less real the temptation to make this leap comes partly from the great hold of natural science models on our entire enterprise of self-understanding so one particular substructure of getting knowledge has been made the chief of all knowledge is what he's saying here According to Taylor, the natural sciences concept of objectivity is valid for the dimension of reality that they study, but it is inadequate for describing the full range of human experience. How then do we know if something's objectively real then? Taylor addresses this with his best account principle. Here's how he describes it. The terms we select have to make sense across the whole range of both explanatory and life uses. The terms indispensable for the latter are part of the story that makes the best sense to us, unless and until we can replace them with more clairvoyant substitutes. The result of this search for clairvoyance yields the best account we can give at any given time, and no epistemological or metaphysical considerations of a more general kind about science or nature can justify setting this aside. This is to say, if what we are attempting to describe is something that we cannot leave out of an account of the way we live our lives, then it must be real. It's something that kind of makes common sense, as it were. If it's something that I cannot, that can't just be explained away, it's kind of like the essence of a thing. Like, could you tell the story uh, without this? Like, or would it make no sense? Then that thing that you can't tell the story without has to be real. So let's think about this in another way. If, if I was to understand this best account principle on my own, I, I probably would come to a very, very strange sort of way of understanding the world. But Taylor doesn't leave it there, right? He's not saying the best account principle is something that I just meditate upon um, in, in the comfort of my own home, in the privacy of my own home. No, again, that's something that we might do uh, in a lab. There's this other part of, of this. And this also relates to the issue of how do we come to these understandings in a pluralistic society? So let's talk about that. Um, how do we not do violence to others when we are attempting to find our and our societies and our cultures constitutive goods? Taylor describes uh, what he calls, uh, or what we could summarize as being called, communal iterative reasoning. It's a means of practical reasoning, reasoning as he says. So there are two components to Taylor's account here. There is this communal aspect wherein community and partnership um, are part of this moral deliberation that is done together. And two, this iterative sense, reasoning in transition, we might say. So regarding the first part, just as science involves drawing upon various sources and experts outside of one's field and placing some degree of faith in, an, in another's work, it should also be acceptable to draw upon a body of knowledge and experiences outside of one's own, even if these systems are not always able to be measured. 
Because human beings are born into and develop within language communities, the pursuit of the true and the good requires this Socratic-like quinonia, a communitarian partnership of communication. This sharing then is wide-ranging, both globally and historically, right? So it, it involves and probably should include the entire world in different ranges of experience. But again, as I mentioned, historically. So it isn't just drawing upon knowledge that has existed in our time. It goes back to tradition, to myth, and allows one to draw on sources from before oneself uh, and perhaps reaching ahead to what might be thought in the future. Uh, again, like I mentioned, Socrates' statement quoted earlier concerning quinonia, cosmia, and ecosmia captures this community dimension of reasoning well by highlighting the sense of sharing with others, uh, sharing with others and with the gods and the worlds and the universe's knowledge. According to Taylor, one moves toward the true and the good, not through a leap of faith or by a process of deprogramming, but by reasoning in transitions. This leads us to that second part of that, that kind of communal iterative reasoning. And following, we follow the sprouting branches of a genealogy of thought. So in the same way that we might say we've responded in modernity to some particular issues of pre-modern times, um, and then maybe post-modernity has responded to some of those modern issues from modern times, each of those systems of thought or broad philosophical movements don't exist um, in of themselves as the final word. They don't exist in a vacuum. We can come to an understanding of why modernity happened by looking at pre-modernity and the same with post-modernity. So those things allow us to reason uh, together and perhaps even correct for mistakes that were made in the past. Taylor describes this reasoning in transitions as a movement of small transitions from A to B. Again, in the process of partnership, in community, and dialogue with one another, comes we come to an understanding, the self comes to an understanding, uh, from their personal starting point, A, towards an epistemic gain of some kind, B. So what's included in this move? This A to B move may clarify a contradiction, allow for a new set of factors, or create a mental map for any number of reasons, multiculturalism, open-mindedness, and religion. And most understand that their current viewpoint is, um, with some sense of humility, uh, is not totally perfect and awaits the refinement of other data, knowledge, or experience. A to B, and re A to B reasoning also implies something else, that there is some other gain to be realized, maybe a C, or a D, or even a Z. Um, but one must move toward this thing gradually and in community as interlocutors in dialogue about their experience of the siren's call. Moreover, the path to Z, uh, is real, as it is realized, differs from person to person. In this way, Taylor is attempting to address the problem of violence. Uh, properly understood, Practical reasoning, this communal iterative thing, um, this reasoning in transitions, um, practical reasoning involves individuals making these moves in community through, with, and around each other, navigating intersubjectivity through sharing and not through violence or domination, and making use of tools such as religion or myth. It doesn't work without those essential parts of the human identity. I quoted Guardini, Guardini earlier, um, and in line with uh, Taylor, we have this principle that we might broadly refer to as a fundamental yes saying to things around us. 
That is to say, we are looking at things with a spirit of charity. So even if somebody's constitutive goods disagree with what we might believe to be our own or what we perceive to be our own, there is a way of looking at this alternative viewpoint with this fundamental yes saying. I've been attempting to demonstrate this as, as I've been talking about modernity, which is probably clear that it's a, as a movement, not something I support. Um, however, what I've been trying to highlight this whole time by, by giving it a, a fair shot, by saying it exists for a reason, uh, especially, like I mentioned, the issue of, of re- religious violence, what it was attempting to do was good. And therefore, if we can find the highest good of a particular movement, we might try to say, hey, look, we're on the same team. Um, and just as we mentioned earlier about Callicles agreeing with Callicles, we might say, hey, modernity, if we could refer to it in that, that way, I see what you're doing and I think it's good. Um, but if your end goal truly is to solve this problem of violence, it might be the case that how you're doing it isn't actually getting us there. It isn't causing that to come to completion. It isn't actually, um, we're not finding, finding a realization there. We might need to posit some of these things to actually make that happen. So the benefit of this this yes saying um, is something that allows us to draw together. So if we are good actors, right? If we can all agree to find this 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 you know commonality, this quinonia, um, somebody representing modernity might say, "Yeah, you are right. You've identified the thing. Um, it really is my highest good to solve this issue of violence because I care about that as my highest good." I'm wanting to listen to you as somebody who's coming after modernity, postmodern, or some something else. Um, tell me what you think then is the answer to, to this problem that we can both agree on. This yes saying is something that does require, as I mentioned, a sense, a posture of charity. One can't come to this fundamental yes saying if they are only looking for the problems in the particular view without any idea of where they've come from. Right, they they've not allowed for this A to B reasoning, right? Um, if we can say, let's just talk about this issue of religious violence, for instance, unless we've really understood what it means to walk through the horrors of religious wars, um, communities decimated by by plundering armies and so forth, it's hard for us to understand in in our modern time, perhaps, just just. <laughs> how badly this problem needs to be solved. And if we are not including that in our iterative process, that particular experience of, hey, this is really, really bad, we really need to solve these problems, then we're not going to find the, the, the same kind of motivation to, to examine these counter-arguments um, with their full epistemic weight, right? Um, and therefore, this yes saying is key to coming to this iterative reasoning. Of course, a classic way that we can see this yes saying not take place uh, is, in, is in many modern forms of media discourse. You know, when somebody makes a statement, then somebody responds with, are you saying? <laughs> what often follows a statement like that is not a fundamental yes saying. That person has heard a soundbite that they think they can get listeners or readers to respond to, and that's why they're trying to formulate it in such a way that um, is appealing to no one, basically, and makes the other side just sound incredulous. Um, ridiculous. Um, so, so it's those kinds of, uh, of, of interaction that we'd want to avoid if we take on this principle of yes saying. Bishop Barron calls this, um, in regards to Catholicism, an, an affirmative orthodoxy, one that still is sure of itself. It has a constitutive good that it's not ashamed of. There is an orthodoxy, a right teaching, 
but it is an affirmative orthodoxy, one that can have this fundamental yes saying towards the concerns and experiences of other things. And we'll use, uh, we'll close up with that as the, uh, the, the second section here on Charles Taylor.